Hey folks, I'm really excited to share a special offer with my listeners today. Skip the trip to the pharmacy each month for your birth control. Get free delivery with free goodies. Yes, free, like Haichu, which are super tasty, chocolate, tea, and even more. Never run out of birth control again. <laughs> That's a big deal, y'all. Get Pandia Health Peace of Mind. Pandia Health makes sure no one runs out of birth control on their watch. Pandia Health brings you a pain-free birth control delivery right to your door. I know one of my biggest fears was making sure that I had my birth control prescription scheduled just right so I could pick them up before I ran out of pills. Ugh, seriously, never again. But now Pandia Health is here to help you out with free delivery of your birth control pills from the only, the only women and doctor founded, women and doctor led company in birth control delivery. Already have an active prescription at a pharmacy and insurance to cover the medications? Pandias Health's delivery, automatic refills, and a reminder to see your primary care physician each year. Those services are completely free. If you ever need a doctor consultation because you want to change the method of birth control or the pills that you take and you don't have an active prescription, it's just 29 bucks once a year to access Pandia Health's expert, passionate doctors for the next 364 days. You save the trip to the pharmacy each month, plus you save the trip to the doctor to get your birth control prescription. Pandian Health can deliver to all 50 states. They take almost all private insurance, except for Kaiser. They do take family-packed PACT, which is also wonderful. Pandia Health is about care, convenience, and confidentiality. Head over to pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com and sign up now. Now, don't forget the code. You get some money off if you get the code Sex Talk with Erica. That's Erica with a K. And you get $5 off the doctor consultation if needed. Because I'm a curious person, I had to ask about the name and I find it pretty cool. Pandia Health comes from the Greek goddess of healing, light, full moon, Pandia. Pan equals every, dia, day. Pandia Health has you covered each day of the year. It's called the Pandia Peace of Mind. Y'all, go check it out. Sex talk, Derek the Miley, cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sex just isn't good enough, no. Sex talk with Derek Miley. Hey folks, welcome to Sex Talk with Eric Miley. Eric Miley here. I have a, a Twitter crush and I brought it to you today. <laughs> I brought you all Dr. Eric Sprankle. I, you are an associate professor of psychology, co-director, sexuality studies program at Minnesota State University. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We're going to jump right in. We're going to talk all about dismantling shame around sex and how some of those roots have been essentially kind of come from real religiosity. Come on, words. I can do it. <laughs> and how abstinence-only education has really essentially been gasoline 
to shame around sex. So I know you research, you teach, you write, and then you share all of these wonderful productions with us on social media. I hear from my clients, they come to me and they they just are expressing such deep pain, trying to come to terms with who they actually are, one, two, and two, like the way that they like to have sex and then how their, their faith or ex-faith um, has impacted their ability to do that. So I, I would love to know, like, how, how do you think, like, abstinence-only sex education and, and religiosity has really impacted shame around sex? Well, my biggest beef with both of those factors, and, and it's essentially abstinence-only education is a wing of sex negativity stemming from religiosity, primarily Christianity in the United States. So when we look at this, what they both have in common is this false belief that there's only one correct way to be a sexual being and only one correct way to be a, a sexually healthy person. And that is following their strict guidelines. So it's very prescriptive. And to, to challenge that is extremely difficult. And that's what I try to do throughout all the different avenues that I'm involved in is trying to, to liberate sexuality from this very, very rigid Christian sexual kind of value system. And I know I get feedback that Christianity isn't this monolith and there's variations of sex negativity and sex positivity within it. But let's be honest as to like what is the dominant, at least sociopolitical force in this country in terms of it's not sex positive. It is very sex negative. And so, yeah, there are a lot of progressive Christian denominations and congregations out there that are doing good work within sex positivity. But that is not what is institutionalized in this country. And so when I speak out against Christianity, that's the target of my criticism. And it's really because they are focused just on prescribing just one way uh, to be sexual. And that's obviously not the, the reality. And when we fall outside of that very narrow definition of sexuality and sexual health, that's when we start experiencing shame and guilt and embarrassment. Because we're, we're living outside of what is expected of us. So it's essentially creating this marginalization of the majority of the population. Yes. Yes. Like I, I hear like so many of my clients will come to me initially and they'll come with it like a very specific like label of something like we were talking before we got on. Like they'll, they'll come to me and say, my partner has sex addiction. Or something I'll also hear is like, I'm trying to deal with this, this, I'm the bad girl or good girl kind of theme through and that limiting my ability to orgasm. And a lot of the times we get to the bottom when once they become a client, we get to the bottom of what's happening. And it comes down to what they heard growing up, not only maybe from their parents, but from the church. What did a good Christian in quotation mark look like? And it was, you know, sexless until that night you got married and then you're an expert. Right. And then everything's supposed to be magical from that point forward without having any resources, without having any knowledge about what sexuality is, even is as a topic, let alone having insight into your own sexual needs, your interests, your wants, how to communicate about it, how to still take precautions to uh, prevent or at least decrease the risk of uh, sexually transmitted infections, which you're not immune to, even if you've abstained from sex until marriage. A lot of communicable diseases that we can pass back and forth. So, again, it just kind of goes back to Christianity, again, the dominant Christianity in this country, creating this playbook of how we should act. 
And I've seen clients when I've done clinical practice, I certainly see students come into the classroom with these kinds of mixed feelings of, I want to be sexual in this way, or I have this kind of identity, the sexual identity, but I feel bad about it. And I don't really know why. They may not be able to pinpoint of like, oh yeah, my priest said when I was eight years old uh, during one of his sermons that this was a sin. A lot of times it's not that concrete. It's just more this abstract that sexuality or anything or anything physical, anything related to the body is the antithesis to the spirit. And those things are very much at odds with one another. And so to reconcile if someone is still spiritual with their physicality, or even if I, I work a lot with atheists who don't believe in any type of God or any type of spirituality, even, yet are still left with these religious leftovers. Uh, they feel bad in their own skin. There's just something on more of like a cellular level because it's been embedded and ingrained these sex negative messages since like day one. And even if they can intellectually distance themselves from it, like, oh yeah, I don't believe in that. There's no such thing as sexual sin. This is all ridiculous. That's just intellectualization. On an emotional level, they still feel the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment. That takes a long time to, to recover from. Absolutely. And I think they're having myself, like full disclosure, uh, been raised during the purity movement and having gone to church camp, <laughs> having ex very much experienced like altar calls and essentially telling us that masturbation was wrong and that that this magic night of like saving yourself until marriage that I can't tell you how many clients have come to me. They have followed through, right? With the rules in quotation marks, they waited until they got married and they don't know what to do with their partner one and two. Then they also then feel a lot of shame regardless of having waited. And I think that people don't, understand that the brain the brain isn't this like massive truth teller as like you are highly aware of but it's it's not a truth teller it moves information quickly and if it if you've been only telling your brain this act it, being sexual in any way is wrong the brain doesn't magically because you have gotten married accept that right yeah and i, I what i've seen clinically too so this is just anecdotal I don't know if quantitative research to, to back any of this up, but certainly what was prominent in my uh, clinical career is that when you are suffering from so much sexual shame from kind of like the, the religion of origin, and again, regardless if they identify with that or not, they're still left with that shame. And that creates so much secrecy in these new relationships oh, and God, yes. the, this myth that once you're married and you have the green light to have sex and enjoy God's love and yada, 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 all that stuff, this delusion that everything is supposed to be perfectly fine. We know that's not the case. They don't have the resources or the skills. And so they have all this newfound interest, not necessarily newfound, but this permission to be sexual. But now they're kind of learning a little bit more about their sexual self, what they like, what they don't like but still have that embarrassment of bringing that up to their partner. They're like, hey, I'm kind of into this. They don't have the skill set to be able to do that. That's a difficult conversation. And so what that creates is this sexual shame fueling sexual secrecy because they're going to try to get that need met in some way. And so clinically, what I used to always see were, and typically these were uh, cis men um, in heterosexual uh, relationships with cis women, 
that they would wait for their partner to go to bed and then they would be up for several more hours, sometimes all night, looking at pornography that, that meets their, their sexual interest. And then ultimately they would get caught and then that would bring them into therapy as, as labeled like sex addicts. And all of this wasn't stemmed from some type of actual addiction or out of control sexual behavior or hypersexuality. It was all rooted in sexual shame and the inability to communicate one's sexual desires. But those desires weren't going anywhere, so they found an unhealthy outlet. And it's unhealthy just because the secrecy, not actually what they were doing, just the nature and the context in which they were doing it. Yes. And the corrosiveness, I think, of the the secrecy is what we are not talking talking about and how that I'm a I'm many of the listeners are aware I'm 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 an act therapist, so I'm all about values. In when we are acting in a way that is not within our values, like behaviorally. So keeping secrets maybe against our values, we will sometimes look incorrectly at other behaviors rather than looking at the value itself that we're violating. Right. right? And I yeah, think that yeah. you're you're nailing that. You're you're absolutely nailing that. Yeah, what's interesting, as a professor at a Bowling Green State University, Josh Grubbs, who's doing some interesting work on moral incongruence, grounding primarily porn use. And noticing that it's not, you know, just challenging this narrative of, of sex addiction. It's not necessarily like this individual has this mental illness that is, is driving their out of control sexual behavior, but it's more of this belief that they are a sex addict because the behavior that they're engaging in is incongruent with their own moral values, primarily religious values. And so, and the conversations around that is never about, well, how do we change your religious values? How do we loosen them up a little bit? It's always demonizing the behavior and recognizing or attributing the behavior as being problematic in and of itself, as opposed to this relationship or this incongruence that one has with their values and the behavior that they're engaging in. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have to wonder, like, how do we create, I mean, I feel like as a therapist, a lot of what I'm doing, how do we create thought flexibility? <laughs> how, how do we create some flexibility here? And and I, I think you're right. I think that it, people have a hesitancy to address that, oh, maybe the the religious part of you may need some flexibility. Not not always, but the not the behavior that's what's happening. So like when you think about how we, you know. This is a million dollar question, of course, and the reason we're working in the field to begin with. How do we dismantle this shame system, Eric? <laughs> like, how, do we, how do we make <laughs> a, a comprehensive sex education program that actually tackles this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's so multifaceted. I mean, the ideal, if I would to, to wave the magic wand, it, it would start with eliminating that absence only curriculum from public schools to private schools too, and replacing it with comprehensive, medically accurate, inclusive K through 12 sexuality education. But all, you know, obviously all the political barriers to actually having that become a reality. So we're left with folks in you know positions such as ours, either in therapy or education that has to kind of you know pick up the slack and kind of try to do some damage control that some of these very sex negative policies have inflicted upon the public. And of course, we're not immune from this. I'm not trying to speak from like a high horse, like everyone who is within sexual health and activists for it has been immune from it. And that's not the case at all. There's always constant struggles and we're bombarded with these same messages everyone else bombarded with. But I think what I try to do, at least on social media, and that's just like obviously one tiny area 
have kind of outreach within the big picture of outreach is just trying to be as permission granting and as validating as possible and be repetitive uh, with it. And, and that's why a lot of my tweets seem like very like sex ed 101, something that you should have learned when you were like seven years old, if not earlier. But, you know, what I see even in college level classes that they're, they're lacking the, the basic understanding of human nature and human sexuality. So we have to go back to the basics. We have to start dating and preaching what we should have been taught early, early on in our development to kind of make up for some of that lost time and some of those, those mixed messages and harmful messages that we've received. So just permission granting that this is, you can you can explore this. This is okay. And validating this. If you have this a particular sexual identity, that's okay. That's normal. That's fine. That's healthy. And it may seem very simple, especially if someone doesn't struggle with this that much. But for somebody who does struggle with this, this can be very, very powerful and reinforcing for them to then take the next steps of like furthering their own insights into their sexuality and their sexual needs and what it means to be a sexually healthy person for themselves. Mm. Yeah. What does it mean for you to be sexually healthy? Because that might mean something different for you than it does from for someone else. It is not one size fits all. And I think that that's exactly what you're, you're stating here. Exactly. And that goes back to my initial like opening statements about my criticism of Christianity as trying to make it one size fits all. And we know that's not a reflection of reality. And so what does sexual health look like? I can't answer that other than that needs to be explored for that individual. Because like you were saying, everybody is going to be different with their own needs, their own desires, and what health means and satisfaction and pleasure means for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I often am trying to work with my clients this, that trying not to tell each partner what pleasure is for them. Identify what it is for yourself and then communicate that. And then when your partner shares what is pleasurable to them, believe them. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> they are not lying to you. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> so I know you've got you're kind of working on a new uh, project that's not completely. So you're you're going to hear it here first, folks. Well, probably not first, but at the very least, the beginnings parts of this new project you've got called uh, Uncrucifying Sex. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. It's just a writing project I've had in mind for a while. Um, this year, the goal is just to try to find what what's going to be the best outlet for it. It's kind of the, the correct medium that I think will convey the messages or the mission for it. And it's essentially like what we've been talking about this whole time is liberating sexuality from Christianity. And so it's, it's going to be largely for atheists, agnostics, other non-believers, the quote unquote nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, not the N-U-N. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although they can read it too, it's fine. I'm sure they would benefit. <laughs> but it is for non-believers who have typically grown up in a religious household. They uh, divorce the, the God assigned to them at birth. But again, like I was saying earlier, they're they're left with a lot of these religious sexual shame messages as leftovers on an emotional level. They can intellectualize uh, and can distance themselves from it intellectually, but emotionally they still feel the sexual shame, guilt, and embarrassment. So it's just reframing the narrative of giving them permission to explore their sexuality, defining it for themselves, coming up with their own secular sexual values 
essentially just being guided with some basic principles of understanding and respecting consent, having sexual knowledge into oneself, and really promoting and respecting bodily autonomy. And that's it. When you just have those three components of consent, knowledge, and autonomy, that frees up so much of these sexual taboos and prohibitions that the church hands down for us to really explore who we are as sexual beings and what we want out of our sexuality and our sexual lives. And so it's a way to kind of start navigating that for ourselves. And if we're not, if we're going to distance ourselves from these religious sexual values that we grew up with, what's going to take its place? And that's going to be unique to the individual. You are talking about creating your own personalized sexual ethics. Come on. Come on. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love it. I think that this is exactly, I, I mean, we talked about a second ago, like the, what would a comprehensive sex education program look like? And the creation of your own sexual ethics should absolutely be a part of it. Right. And, right regardless sure. of how you identify religiously or not. Right. I, I, yeah. I just think that's beautiful what you're talking about. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We have this new segment that I've been doing called Ask Erica, and a lot of the things that I, I mean, we break, we do a lot of normalization in in our in our work generally, like research, writing, whether you're working with clients or not. We're we're trying to help people answer the question, "Am I normal?" And you have this wonderful quote on your website. I'm going to read the whole thing, and uh, it's in in. Uh, basically based on a question that an 18-year-old was asking about essentially the number of people that they've had sex with. So we're going to tackle and ask Erica today the like what's the appropriate number to of people to have sex with and I just love this this quote to just spark this conversation. You said after you tell your close friends about your latest sexual encounter, do they look at you like you've just slapped a puppy? Do they say they are trying to be supportive, but are actually saying, burn the witch under their breath? (laughs) You are experiencing distress that many people experience when attempting to feel confident about their sexuality, but are met with misunderstanding and judgment from their friends, family, and society. I I mean, let's jump in. Like, how do we, how do we uh, deal with the burn the witch eyes? (laughs) (laughs) Get new friends. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> new friends. Yeah, and I, yeah, and to to address that, and it was kind of a flippant statement, but and easier said than done. But I think that happens over time, and I think we need to give ourselves permission to kind of grow out of our friends, grow out of our social networks that may have been a little bit more representative and reflective of a more sexually conservative self that we were kind of pretending to be. And so sometimes this is a, a cold break um, where it kind of leaves you feeling kind of friendless, or it can just gradually happen over time. And you kind of notice you start hanging out with different friends who are a little bit more supportive and not seeing the other friends who are a little judgy, seeing them uh, less often or, or maybe cutting contacts completely. So I think that's important is just kind of surrounding yourself with supportive people. And that, that may require some changing within, within your social network, because ultimately what it comes down to, I know that question for an old blog I used to do called Scarlet Letters, that was just kind of the concerns about someone's quote unquote, um, like body count or whatever it's called and how that number is, is ridiculous, whether that's zero or a hundred, how a little that actually has to do with, um, someone's sense of self for sure. And very little uh, implications for other things kind of moving forward with one's sexual health. So really kind of moving away from is a number important because it's not, again, whether it's zero or several dozen to several hundred 
that doesn't really matter. What matters is what's going to be, again, having a number that aligns with your own personal value system. So if you want to abstain from sex until marriage and just have that one person as your number, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. You know, adhere to that value, understand where that's, that's coming from and engage in behaviors that's congruent with that. But if that's not your value system, then you shouldn't have to conform to some other person's value system because they think there's inherent value in that. And there's not inherent value in that. What's inherently virtuous is having insight into your own needs and then living in congruence with those needs. Yes. Living up to your own sexual ethics and values. I mean, beautifully, beautifully put. It's, it is incredibly difficult to when when this conversation specifically about the the body count, which you know, murders, sex. I mean, we should be specific right. here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like, there's so many times when a friend, a client will will say like, "Oh, well, I've only had sex with blank," as if that number is supposed to mean something to me. Yeah. 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 Most like any kind of number, it's very, very meaningless, especially for clinicians. So that doesn't tell me anything about their sexual self, what they need, what they want, what they desire, what they find pleasurable. Much like when people come in with concerns about quote unquote sex addiction or porn addiction, when they say that they masturbate X number of times per day or per week, that number is completely meaningless to me clinically. That doesn't tell me at all about their nature, the nature of their sexual health. So these numbers, these, these quantifiable numbers, have very little value within, especially clinical sexuality, and I would argue just general sexuality as well. Y'all just listen up. Next time you try to tell somebody the number of partners you're with, just, just hear Dr. Eric Sprinkles, like, hear his voice in your head. <laughs> it means nothing. <laughs> your sex number means nothing. <laughs> and, and I think that that's something that we have some sort of meaning we, in, we attach to it as well, that we're trying to communicate it to somebody else. And you don't even know how that person's hearing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there could be a lot of motivations why we're trying to share that number trying to get validation, support, permission, condemnation, whatever the case may be. But again, that kind of goes back to the general assumption that a particular number has either a good or a bad value attached to it. And that's not the case at all. Yes, absolutely. You know, I am just so glad that you were here with me today. And how, so how do people find you in this world? What do you got coming up? What's going on in your world? Social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Dr. Sprankle. My website, I tend to ignore, but that will have some updates as, as it comes, especially with Uncrucifying Sex, that writing project. So that's just drsprankle.com. And recently, I became the uh, the director for the Secular Therapy Project, the nonprofit wing of the Recovering from Religion group. And essentially, it just pairs secular individuals looking for a secular therapist in their area. So you can check that out, too, at seculartherapy.org. I just love it. Seculartherapy.org. All right, folks. Thank you for sticking around to the end with us. And if you do have any questions for Dr. Sprinkle, um, super active on Twitter. I, I follow happily, just telling you all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we thank you again for listening and we will see you all next time. Thanks for listening, folks. 
please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.